Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, this is Brad Listy. I am re-airing my conversation with Shauna Mayen today. I'm very sad to report that we have lost her. She had been struggling with COVID-19, like the long-haul version of COVID-19 over the past year, had a particularly nasty case of it, and uh, had been having a very difficult time. And from what I gather, she took her own life um, last week. So it's heartbreaking news, and I thought... um, I would just share my recollection of her. I only had that one conversation with her, which is one of the strange parts of doing this show. I have these great conversations with people, and oftentimes it's it's that's it, you know? Uh, but what I remember about her was how funny she was, uh, how vulnerable she seemed, and she had what I would characterize as survivor's energy, She had been through quite a lot. This is a person who had uh, a spectacularly difficult childhood and lived to tell about it. And not only that, but emerged from it somehow with her sense of humor intact, with her good heart intact. She was really funny. And frankly, uh, I'm sorry I didn't get to know her better. So if you're out there and you did uh, know Shauna and you're grieving her loss, I send you my deepest condolences. I'm so sorry. Uh, It's terrible to lose anyone. It's, you know, it's always terrible to lose someone. I think it's, it's extra hard in some ways to lose somebody to suicide. So my heart goes out to you. If you did not know Shauna Mayen, you should read her book. She left behind a beautiful novel. It is called Oh, You Pretty Things, and it is out on Dutton. So get your hands on that. It's Oh, You Pretty Things by Shauna Mayen. So having said that, I think I'll just get to the conversation. Um, Again, deepest sympathies to Shauna's family and friends. She will be missed, and I hope this conversation serves as a a good memory of her and uh, who she was and how she lived. 
This episode first aired on June 17th, 2015, and I'm playing it again for you right now. This is my conversation with Shauna Mann. I grew up all over the west side of Los Angeles. Um, I mean, literally everywhere from Venice to even into the valley, from Venice to Studio City, but and back. Um, my mother was, depending on depending on how, you know, I mean, she she wasn't. No one labeled her in those days. She was never diagnosed, but she was probably schizophrenic. Uh, the television, you know, would talk to her. She would, we would throw the television set out every few years because, or every few months because, you know, like there were voices telling her that, you know, like this was going to happen or this was bad, and she would freak out and throw the TV away. Uh, but moving also was was like a super high priority for her. She was big on fresh starts, so we moved at least once a year. Um, sometimes only a few blocks away, but I mean, there's, there's not, there's not an area of, of the West side of Los Angeles that I haven't lived in for at least a short period of time. So wait, okay. So you're moving once a year. That's tough. That's tough on a kid. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and then did your, like, was it like, you know, was your mom, uh, in addition to like hearing voices from the television, was she thinking like, uh, the place that we're in, it's got a bad energy. It's got a bad, it's haunted. And then we got to go somewhere, you know, somewhere new. She wasn't super juju-y like that, usually, although she did believe in aliens. Um, and then once, an, you know, like once an alien had sort of, if an alien had come to the house, which happened not infrequently, then we would have to move. Okay. So aliens. <laughs> and you're how old hearing this? You're like, what, five years old? From, years? yeah, from the earliest I can remember. And what are you thinking about these alien? Uh, well, your- dude, I believed her. I mean, you know, it was just my mom and it was just me and my mom for, you know, ever when I was, when I was a kid. So, you know, how do you know what you don't know? Right. It wasn't until I was probably, I don't know exactly. I mean, it's funny. People have asked me a lot of questions and that no one's ever asked me that. When did I figure out that, you know, there was something was amiss? Well, first of all, it's just, it's a heavy thing to lay on a kid. There's aliens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't need to be hearing that when I'm five years old. And because you're, I mean, of course you're going to believe it. Yeah, I, I wasn't, that actually wasn't the worst. I mean, that didn't seem like the worst thing in the world to me, you know? I mean, I was, I was big, you know, my first, I, like, I loved early fantasy, like, the Chronicles of Narnia were, were, was, like, sort of my first favorite set of books. I mean, after, like, little golden books or whatever, because the idea that there was some magical place where, you know, the forces of good and evil were very clearly delineated was very attractive to me because things were much more fluid in my house. You're like, yeah, so, you're like, maybe these aliens are going to show up and fix things. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Take yeah, me away. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I was big into the Narnia books, too, when I was a kid. Oh, see, I already like you. Yeah. No, I mean, just like the idea that you could, like, get into this, uh, you know, go into this uh, wardrobe and, you know, I like the whole thing. I don't know why. But now I find out, like, later in life, I learned that it was this big Christian allegory, which made I it... know. How much of a bummer was that? Well, but I mean, I, I, maybe I'm thinking, like, because I was raised Catholic, I guess you weren't, huh? You had no religion. Well... We were every religion oh, <laughs> you know, okay. in keeping in keeping with our need to move frequently. I went to I went to Catholic school for fourth and fifth grade and a little bit of sixth grade. Uh, we were you know, we went to the Self-Realization Fellowship Center for a while. My mom checked out Scientology. I mean, I remember d- reading Dianetics at a relatively early age, just going like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, you know, it's weird. Uh, well, for, like, just to complete my thought, I think maybe like when you're reading the Narnia books as a kid and you have some education or background in uh, Christianity, Catholicism or whatever, maybe it was working on some subconscious level. Maybe the story parallels or whatever. Yeah. Well, 
Certainly. I mean, I wanted to believe. I didn't. I I didn't start calling myself an atheist until I was in my probably twenties, thirties. I mean, the idea of something to believe, like you know, that there's an ordained quality to the universe in wh- however you believe that is is you know, I mean, that's very attractive. Um, and, unfortunately, I no longer believe it to be true, but um, so that's where yeah. you are. That's where you are spiritually. You're a full atheist right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that there's there I think that there's energy in the universe, but I don't think I think I think we live in a very chaotic I think we live in a chaotic universe in a chaotic world, and I don't think that there's anything that 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 governs that in any way. Yeah, I mean, there can't be anybody like like if if anyone's like pulling the puppet strings or anything is pulling the puppet strings, uh, it's a pretty twisted thing. Yeah, if any, you know, I'd like to have a word with that entity right you know, like, if that's the case like you're like i could have used some help when i was moving twice a year as a you know adolescent or whatever but or even now i mean you know right. explain basically the entire continent of africa or you know like all of the atrocities that are being perpetrated in in so many places you know like sure. to get like lucy ricardo ricky ricardo about it like you got some explaining to do if, right. if, if you exist <laughs> right um okay so where was dad if uh, it was just you and your mom no siblings and, and no siblings i had a i had a sister who died before i was born she drowned in my parents swimming pool in um it's funny i just did a i just did a big phone interview and i feel like so now i feel like i'm repeating all of this um that covered all of this but it'll be new hopefully to your listeners um i uh my parents had a child. I was, I'm 51. So my parents had a child in 1960. Um, she died in 1962. She drowned in their swimming pool. Uh, the story that I believed my entire life was that my mother had been cast as Ellie Mae on the Beverly Hillbillies and my parents were having a party. And, you know, my mother was in the kitchen with the caterers and she looked out and saw something floating in the pool and she thought it was one of my sister's dolls and went down to get it. And it was actually my sister. And they lived in Coldwater Canyon at the time. And, you know, the paramedics were called and it was too late. And then the party guests started arriving story. I believed my whole life after my mother died, she killed herself in 2000. She was homeless. Oh. Um, after, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> thank you. That's, that's very sweet. Just I'm now, I'm now lying down. I've, I've, I'm... <laughs> I've put you on the couch. Yes. There's, there's going to be a bill later. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll send you my bill. I'm not, I'm not inexpensive. Um, <clears throat> Anyway, uh, that, that turned out to be completely untrue, uh, but I didn't know that until after my mother was dead and I had a, a lunch with my father, who I saw very rarely, in, both in my childhood and in my, in, in my adulthood, for two very different reasons, which I'll explain if you care to hear them. But, sure. Um, so I was having lunch with my father in, like, I don't know, 2005 or something, and it was right when I was just starting to, when I was just starting to write. And I said, you know, so what happened? And his story was completely different. You know, they were drunk, they were fighting, which honestly sounds like so much, so much closer to the truth. And, you know, forensic evidence shows that, in fact, she was not ever, you know, not ever in the running to, but not ever in the running to be on that show. But um, uh, drunk and fighting and, and, you know, not paying attention and, and my, and my, would have, what would have, who would have been my older sister drowned. And then my parents got pregnant with me, like probably three days later, you know, I was literally born like 10 months later. So kind of doomed from the gate, you know, (laughs) in terms of, in terms of like healthy, healthy young childhood, I have no early memories of my father at all. 
So were your parents were your parents drinking a lot? I mean, like you, your mother, you said was mentally ill, or probably was, but it was undiagnosed. She was definitely mentally ill. What she what what her what her condition was is you know will will be speculation. You know, I mean, we'll never know. But but certainly every therapist I've ever had is like, mm, yeah, schizophrenic of one form or another, possibly paranoid schizophrenic. Um, which you know, again, armchair. I mean, you can't. And was it exacerbated with substance abuse? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, she wasn't, she was, she was staunchly anti-drug except, except oddly, except for Valium because my childhood pediatrician, who was a dear friend of hers, uh, you know, gave, pre- prescribed them to her and, and she drank pretty copiously. Okay. Okay. So, and, and, but the thing too, I'm thinking is that uh, you go through something horrible like that, that like she must've been carrying like an enormous burden of guilt. Of course, of Enorm- course. Like I can't even imagine. Like so, you know, maybe that. Uh, I mean, th- like I guess that can. I, like I guess what I'm getting at is that when something really traumatic happens to somebody, something that heavy that they carry around, um, that can factor into or trigger um, a kind of uh, mental illness or a break. Like I could see. Like yeah. I mean, I, I'm speaking completely. Uh, you know, with no authority. I have no medical authority here, obviously, but it just seems to make sense to me. Like something like that could have been a big part of the equation. Absolutely. And from, from everyone's account, I mean, she has, she has, and had a, a, one has, has died. Um, but she has siblings. Um, by all accounts, she was, she was not, she was eccentric at best in throughout, even throughout her own childhood and, and her, you know, adolescence and adulthood. But for sure, I mean, how can you not, I don't have anything to compare it to because, because of my, you know, like, because of the way that I was raised, but I mean, and I hope this doesn't sound just awful, but, but I have, I have a 15 year old dog who I've had since basically since he was a puppy and he's definitely in his golden moments right now. And the thought of my dog dying is just unhinging me. I mean, I guarantee you when my dog dies, there's going to be a period of mourning like that. I've something, something I've never felt before. Not with it, not that I have not felt with the death of either of my parents. And I realize that how possibly shallow that sounds, but I didn't have, I mean, this dog has, you know, been an unconditional part of my life through so much where both of my parents sort of weren't right. What kind of, and, dog, what kind of dog? He's a mutt. He's either Italian greyhound or whippet and some kind of terrier. He's what, about 20, 25 pounds. What's his name? Riley. Riley. All right. I just want to get Riley. Like we, we, we got to put Riley on the record. Shout out for Riley. Yeah. Love uh, it. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
Um, okay, so and your mom was an was it like a, an aspiring Hollywood actress? Well, not not by the time I came along. Um, my mother was a my mother was an actress in the forties and fifties, or the basically in the forties. She was a, a, a allegedly okay. Here's another thing that I have to say: like everything has the disclaimer. I mean, just everything. Whenever I talk about either of my parents, unless I'm telling you a firsthand story of this happened to me, you know, and my mother together, it's allegedly because you know, because of my mother's, whatever her illness was, and my father's, my father is at best a teller of tall tales and at worst a pathological liar. So wait, is your, and, is your father still with us? No, he's okay. dead. Oh, he is, okay. <laughs> yeah, he died, he died just a few years ago, actually. He died in 2000, muffle, muffle, I don't know, 2008 or nine. Okay. So, but uh, mom was like, she, she was an actress in the 40s and 50s, you think? Mm-hmm. She definitely was. I mean, you, you know, you can IMDb her and see some of her. She was a contract actress. The, the, the I think part was, she, she, I believe she was a contract actress for MGM. She has a handful of, of roles that, you know, nothing big. Um, she was, you know, she was like a substitute little rascal there for a while. You know, she, she has a couple of those episodes. And she did a handful of, of movies where she always was always like, you know, someone's little sister or whatever. And what, what, uh, and what was her name? Beverly Hudson. Okay. If anybody wants to look that up. Uh, and so, okay, and then your dad, what did he do? Uh, my father, well, my grandfather, I'm sure you've done research, you probably know this, but my, my grandfather was, wow, did that sound snotty? Um, <laughs> don't over, sure, don't overestimate I'm, me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've already looked me up. Um, my grandfather was one of the founders of the Screenwriters Guild, which was the original, you know, the precursor to the, to the Writers Guild that exists today. Um, very famous screenwriter wrote, you know, the captain's courageous in heaven is Mr. Allison and, you know, all kinds of amazing, um, he didn't really, like he and my father did not have a close relationship. My father grew up in boarding schools in Connecticut and came out summers to, you know, go fishing with like John Houston and John Wayne and my grandfather. Um, and my father idolized my grandfather. So tried and, and what was your, to what was follow. Your, what was your grandfather's name? John Lee Mayen. Okay. Um, are you frantically? Are you? Are you? Are you I'm, go- I'm googling. Yeah, I'm googling as we speak. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I appreciate a podcast that flies by the seat of its pants. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's my mo. So, uh, but you know, but like you have some Hollywood uh, bloodlines. Like you have you for sure. Okay, and so you grew up knowing that. And um, did you have a sense that, like, oh, I'm going to be a part of this, too? I'm going to... No. I mean, the interesting thing, or that's the worst, that is the worst lead-in in in the world. The interesting thing is, no, it's not necessarily an interesting thing. I'll be the judge of that. It's interesting to me um, that, uh, fuck, now I've forgotten what's interesting or not. But the answer is no. Uh, We did not, I did not have that I did, there was there was no expectation on my part. There was always a but there was always a deep yearning. I mean, fame was absolutely a family value in my house. And my mother, by the time by the time I was growing up, my mother and I lived, as I said, in a series of you know basically shitty one bedroom and, and studio apartments all over the all over the West Side. While my father my father remarried briefly, a relatively wealthy woman, I assume, because they lived in this, you know, like really sort of fancy little castle house up in the Bird Streets. And um, and my grandfather, of course, was sort of firmly ensconced in his, you know, in his Beverly Glen 
ranch house that, you know, that all of those films purchased for him, although he was basically retired at that point. And my mother's sister married a very well-known character actor of the time, Keenan Wynn. And so she, they had, you know, like this big giant old house in the flats of, of Brentwood. And, you know, we were always like, which one of these things is not like the others. (laughs) And, and so it, it always seemed, you know, sort of dealing, looking at that. And of course, I'm, they, they of course had all of their own problems inside of their own homes, which I was not really privy to, but occasionally privy to, but mostly not. But it always, the grass always seemed so much greener. And my mother was very, very bitter that, you know, like her ship had sort of, you know, sailed in and then sailed out and left her on the dock. So although she didn't, she didn't aspire for, for me to be an actress, which I don't know if you've read the book, but I, don't answer that. I don't want to know if you've read the book. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you've read the book and adored it. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, there's my squeaky chair, but um, the character, the, the mother, the character of the mother in this book is is not my mother at all. Although certainly there were, you know, there are a few mannerisms that just slipped in. But my mother did not did not. My mother wanted me to have an education. My mother did not want me to have to have a Hollywood life. So she, but she had that value for you too. I mean, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, she wasn't. I mean, she wasn't. You know, there are no there are no angels and devils. You know, I mean. Yeah, it was a it was a crazy, traumatic, fucked up, hard childhood. But there, you know, there are also benefits to having, to having, you know. But you also had prox- you like had that. proximity to all this affluence too, which is a weird way. You know, it's 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 weird to have. I, would, I mean, relative affluence, right? Absolutely, and I, w- I honestly I wouldn't wish that on anyone. No, I was gonna I was just gonna say it's it's actually um, especially hard. To be, uh, you know, not affluent or poor, uh, to put yeah. it, you know, more bluntly, yeah. but but to have access and uh, proximity to those who aren't, because, you know, it heightens the difference. Um, you know, when you actually get to see what you're missing, it makes it harder. You know. Sure. I know absolutely, and particularly, I mean, when you're a kid. When I was a kid, I mean, when when you are a kid, I, I, speaking in generalities, but for me. I always went to very fancy. I, w- I went to a string, mostly of very fancy schools that were usually on, and again, allegedly, uh, but on full scholarships. If if they if I wasn't on a full scholarship, I have no idea where we obtained the money because my mother was basically a secretary and unemployed for most of my for all of my childhood and and adolescence. Well, who was like? What about um, you? What about your grandfather? Like he had some money, wasn't he taking care of you? No, he was not. He did not, he, he, I saw him very rarely and he, you know, he had such a fraught relationship with my father. Um, my father would come and pick me up and sort of like, you know, take me over there as like a prop. You know? Yeah, he's like, I, need, like, I need a buffer. Yeah, I need a buffer. Totally. And he, and my, my grand, my grandfather was very kind to me. I mean, you know, I think, I think that sort of tends to happen or at least I watched it happen with my father. Like my father was an asshole and I mean, he, I mean, and I understand, I understand why my father was an asshole because he didn't, you know, he didn't get the tools from his dad and he didn't, and he didn't go out and forge those tools himself. So, you know, I mean, I understand why my father was what he was, but my father was not a great father when I was growing up. But the, the later interactions that I had with him as, as infrequent as they were, he had a longtime girlfriend. They were together for 40 years before he died. Um, and she has 
four sons and they have, they now have children and he was sort of great with those grandkids. Right. And it's like, you know, I get it. Like it sort of skips, you know, like you don't feel the pressure. It skips a generation, you know, like you skip that generation where you don't feel like you're, you know, like your make or break. I mean, I, I can't, I can't, I mean, I, I don't know. I was going to, I was going to go off onto a tangent of like why I think my father was the way he was with me, but that's like, uh, it's boring. I don't want to do that. But, but, um, and so, but I mean, okay. So then, uh, <laughs> You're living with your mom most yeah. of the time. I can, I'm starting to understand clearly why you would drop out of high school. You just had to get out, right? Well, yes. And, and there were, I mean, well, I started self-medicating too. I mean, you know, the, my, my mother, I mean, the good parts of living with a, with a schizophrenic woman are that, you know, she comes <laughs> home on New Year's Day and says, like, we're going to go get you a pony, you know, and, and so you draw, you know, like, which get me a pony means we're just going to go ride a pony. There's, she can't actually buy me a pony, but you know, the, the talk of it all, you know, like, or world, but like get in the car, we're going to San Diego. And, you know, she was very spontaneous and, and, you know, there were, there were those sort of things that were sort of magical. Like one night she stayed up all night and something that, you know, these are all, these are all pieces too, that I feel like I'm cannibalizing because I've worked on a memoir which is not this book, but there's this other book, this memoir. That... I was, I was going to say, you need to write a memoir. If anybody is qualified to write a memoir, it's you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. You and Alexandra Jacobs. I, I don't know if you read the, the New York Times review. She, I, just, I just had a uh, review in the New York Times this past Sunday, which, I mean, thank you, New York Times, my third on this book, which is fucking amazing and unheard of, and I cry. I can, I'm probably going to cry just thinking about it right now. But her this last one was mm, a little less than kind. She, I mean, she had some salient points, but at the end she said, mm, I wonder if there's not a memoir in here. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, like I mean, a, we're working on it. Yeah. You're like, uh, <laughs> just, just you wait, Alexandra. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, okay. So, uh, high school dropping out, yeah. things coming to a head at some point. Well, so understand. So I had gone from fourth grade, fifth grade, at this Catholic school, a, a moment of public school in sixth grade. And then my mother, and as I was, I, I was, a, I was scholastically, I was a gifted child. I, I think, you know, for sure, like years of bad decisions and hard living have put me much more onto the level of just sort of average, but without question, you know, I mean, part of the reason that I was getting these scholarships at all these fancy schools in town was because I was, because I was gifted what, Scholast- what, schools? what schools are we talking? Um, well, the first school that, I mean, my elementary school was Carl Thorpe, which is this little, it's this, you know, little $30,000 a year school on, on uh, San Vicente in Santa Monica. And when I went there, they skipped me from kindergarten right into the second grade. And that didn't work out well for me. Again, which one of these things is not like the others, both economically and size wise, you know, I, I, what you were, you were you were a big child? No, <laughs> I was not a big child. Right. I was I was a small child. So I mean, I was I was a normal sized child. But when you when you put a kid when you take a kid from a kindergarten class and put him into a second grade class, oh, oh, you oh. know, like from a five year old to a seven year old. God, how horrible you know? is that? I was immediately yeah. thinking, like, wow, they're judging kids in, in <laughs> first grade and, and they're like, hey, fat kid, <laughs> yeah, Jesus. I'm like, like, Wait, Brad Listy. I mean, and I, I am a large woman now. I was like, Brad Listy, did you just call me fat? No, no. I was. I'm thinking of my daughter like going into school. Like they've already got body, you know, body stuff happening in first grade. I'm like dreading yeah. it because she's four. But okay, so, 
Um, but that that makes me happy, actually. So you were just you were you were tiny because you yeah, were no, I was the, well, I was the little kid, of course, because I was playing with you know I was five and I was on the on the playing on the playground with second graders. Like nobody wants nobody wants the five year old in the dodgeball pick, right, you know. Right. Um, plus, you know, w- again, which one of these things is not like the others? Just when you're, when there's that much of a, of a of a sociological you know or economical chasm between you and you know 99.7 percent of the of the student body you feel i mean i felt it i mean i absolutely felt it just in terms of like what's in your lunchbox or what clothes are you wearing or who picks you up from school or you know all of those things i mean even at a very young age i was profoundly aware of those differences and and then so then then we tripped along through you know lesser like i went to saint monica's which you know again is sort of like a relatively affluent uh, uh, Catholic school in Santa Monica, but the school, the school where it all really went sideways for me was, um, at, when I, when I attended, it was called Brentwood Academy. Now it's just called the Brentwood school on sunset and on sunset in Barrington and in, uh, in Brentwood. Um, and it was sort of the repository. It had been a, it had been a, uh, military academy that had just recently switched over to being a co-ed quote prep unquote school. And, Really, it was kind of a repository for like super rich kids, and you know that that may or may not have you know deal that may or may not be dealing with some some behavioral issues. Oh, which, really? Was it like so? It was like for problem children. I mean, actually, I, I I can't necessarily say that. I certainly gravitated toward the problem children. So seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, you know, overachiever total social outcast. I mean, like for, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is, you know, most of those kids come from other feeder schools. Like they come from, they come from Curtis and, and like, I honestly can't even remember, remember the names of, if you've got a four-year-old, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. If you're sort of looking at like, how do you place a child in, right. you live in, you know, in the Los Angeles school system world. Um, and plus I was, you know, I mean, I'd been raised by a schizophrenic woman. So, you know, and I'd, and I'd change schools at least once a year, every year. So um, it wasn't, it was, it was traumatic for me, but it was also, it was also probably the best learning experience that I had because there were, you know, there were sort of like gifted classes and non, and, um, and that was all going swimmingly until the summer between ninth and 10th grade when, you know, things, things, my mother, my mother was deteriorating for sure and, and becoming more and more violent. And, you know, she had, she used to threaten to kill herself all the time, but she would also threaten to kill both of us. And, you know, I mean, like it wasn't, there there was definitely like, I had a little PTSD thing going on, which I refer to it now and it sounds kind of glib, but that's because I've had 15 years of therapy. You know, I can speak about it and not, you know, not have it be like, oh, and then there's this very dramatic thing that I have to tell you because it just, I mean, I'm certainly not alone and it is what it is. Um, but I feel like I have to, I had to, I had to sort of throw that, that disclaimer in there because I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not to not minimize. It yeah, was, no. you know, it was fucked up. Yeah. Um, but so summer between ninth and 10th grade, I'd actually made a friend in the summer in, in the, in the school year of ninth grade who was. Uh, a fame, you know, I'm just going to name her because I already named her for this other thing. And I hope we haven't spoken in years and I'm, I'm, and I have nothing but lovely things to say about her. So I hope she's not horrified or offended, but Julie Andrews daughter, Emma Walton was, became a dear friend of mine in the ninth grade. And she was, she was healthy and, you know, I mean, 
especially for, I mean, now in hindsight, now that I know so many actors and their offspring and what have you, I know, I know how difficult, you know, how, how difficult it can be to raise confident, healthy children in, you know, when you're living in, in that Hollywood environment, but she was lovely. Her parents were lovely. Um, and they were very, very kind to me in, in, for, for basically my whole ninth grade school year. And then they went off to Stad for the summer and I could not go along. And <laughs> of course they did. That's yes. where, where else is, well, where else is Julie Andrews going to go? But you know, Gestad. Yeah. Um, and that was the summer of my, you know, that was when I discovered that drugs were really, you know, like that was just a much faster way to, you know, I mean, prior to that, my, my drugs of choice had been books really. And, and immersing myself in schoolwork and, you know, anything that I, that, that would let me completely sort of check out. And when I discovered drugs and, and horses, I had a brief horse riding stint that year with, <laughs> with Emma because, you know, they were very kind to me with their horses. Right. Um, but yeah, drugs but, and boys like that, you know, that was like the rocket ship to, I can check the fuck out of here. Right. So when I came back to the Brentwood school, they were a little like, Oh, Oh, scholarship child, what's happened to you? You know? What were you doing? What kind of drugs well, were you doing? Well, oh my God. Well, so first of all, and the statute of limitations has got to be up right now, so I feel comfortable saying this. Um, I, I mentioned that childhood pediatrician, which who, by the way, we lived with for a while. And side note on him, he was this lovely gay man who was completely closeted because it was, you know, like... I mean, when I was a kid, it was the 60s, but now we're moving up into the 70s. Um, but he had this beautiful house in in Malibu with, like, these two grand, white grand pianos that faced each other. And, I mean, he, you know, he, he definitely had, like, a whole Liberace vibe. And he liked to have, and he, you know, and he had a, a predilection for younger boys who were always his nephews or, you know, what have you. Anyway, we lived in his, we lived in his pool house for a while. And when I fell in with this little crowd that was you know, that was drinking and there was the, there was the kid's father who was a dentist. So we had access to nitrous oxide, which was awfully fun, but also awfully dangerous, you know, cause you just sort of fill up a balloon with it and just inhale it until you just fall over. Right. Um, but in this, again, I, I'm dating myself, but this is back in the era of quaaludes and, you know, like placidils and two and alls and all these crazy downers that were still relatively easy to get. So I would steal his or appropriate, if you will, I mean, it was yeah, it was stealing, but they were he just left them around the house. I mean, I would take his, and also this was like, way like before, in a, like in a candy bowl, <laughs> not drugs, prescription <laughs> prescription pads. Oh, okay. And I, so so we knew this guy who had an older brother who had flunked out of being a, a, like EMT school, and he would write the prescriptions, and we would go and fill them, and you know the eldest looking among us would the oldest looking among us would go and fill them, and then I would sell them. You know, and take them, and also copiously take them. So I was taking anything. I was not a coke girl, although I dabbled. I had my moments, but you know, not a coke girl. But definitely, like any downery kind of thing that would just, you know, that would create a scrim between me and the outside world. I'm in. Yeah. I was a horrible drinker. I was like, you know, I would drink two beers and throw up in the back of you know, like whoever's BMW. Sorry. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, uh, so drugs. Did it ever get to the point where you had to get sober? Um, well, I stopped drinking, I stopped, I stopped doing drugs. I mean, I stopped doing drugs, drugs pretty early on. I stopped doing drugs when I was, I don't know, 19 or 20. And then I got married, which, to my first husband, which was not, um, 
you know, he was a lovely man, but, you know, it was sort of out of the frying pan and into the fire of which one of these things is not like the others because I, he was relatively wealthy and I felt like I couldn't, like I was just not measuring up to, you know, like I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't create the lifestyle that he wanted his housewife wife to create. Right. And um, so then I started drinking and, and I, you know, I figured out how to drink without throwing up in the back of someone's BMW <laughs> or my own. Yeah, um, got the hang of it. Yeah, got, got the hang of the whole drinking thing. And, and then, it, you know, and that was pre-therapy. So at one point I stopped drinking. I stopped drinking. For, I, I didn't drink for, mm, I'm an embellisher, I, at least 10 years. Somehow it's grown to 13, but I actually think it's like more like 10 or 11 because it just, you know, like it, it just, to, had stopped working in my life. And, and concurrently with that, however, I got into therapy and started doing all the work to make myself not self-destructive. But in long-winded answer to your question, yes, I didn't. I was, I was actively sober for about 10 years. Right. And, I, I, and I'm, I am no longer. I actually now drink with, you know, and it's been that way for about five years. So the but, jury's, still, but, jury's still out. Check jury. back with me. Okay. Check back with me in a while. But it's, but, more, it's more controlled. Absolutely. I mean, well, I don't, I don't have, you know, I mean, I'm a writer and I'm neurotic and, and I still have, you know, I still have big storm clouds of lack of self-esteem that come blowing through the house and knock me sideways. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm sure. None whatsoever. (laughs) But I, but I don't have, I don't have the desire to obliterate myself the way, the way that I did before I dealt with you know, before I dealt with all the shit from, from my childhood. Well, you know, you, that's the thing about it is that, like, it's one thing to get sober, but if you just get sober but you don't do any of the work to find out why you were self-destructive yeah. in the first place, you've got to have some therapy, too, somehow, right? Well, that's I think so. I mean, I think without I, – I, I think there, there are plenty of people who don't do that. And, and, you know, I mean, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're not an asshole. Right, exactly. You know? That's what I'm saying. Like, you can be sober, but it's like you haven't really even gone in and – you know, uh, investigate it, you know, I guess. and further, just because you're sober doesn't mean that you're happy. You know, I mean, like you get, I think you get that, you get that happy moment, but then you still have all of the same. I mean, I think without speaking about any programs in particular, because you know, they have rules about that, um, that I still feel compelled to follow sort of, not really. Um, I mean, the, the idea is, is taking responsibility for your own actions that 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 ultimately help you alleviate that like you know the giant anvil of shame that is pretty universal when you're when you're when you're so self-destructive that you're drinking and using drugs on a regular basis there's usually like a big you know like anvil of shame that you're carrying around on your back um so when you when you do that work and that gets lifted to some degree there's still all of like i mean the, there, there's, to me, I, I never found a place in, in, that, in that avenue of sobriety, the, the ther- therapy, working, working in therapy along with it was so important to me because where do you deal with all the anger? Right. You know, like where, where do you deal with all of, you know, with all of that stuff? And, and that's, that wasn't something that I found in, you know, in, in a program of sobriety, but it was certainly what it took me a decade to work through in therapy. And it's not, and it wasn't like, you know, I didn't get a certificate. <laughs> you know, it's not like cured on my wall. I mean, that's, that's definitely going to be life work for me forever, you know? You've got to be so pissed off. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and which doesn't mean that I don't have big, big moments of empathy and, and, and sympathy and, and all of it. But whenever, sometimes when I find myself in, 
in a particularly dark place or um, I see myself reacting in a way, you know, like that, that sometimes that sort of moment that happens outside of yourself where I'm watching my really bad behavior going like, why the fuck am I doing this right now? And, and then pretty quickly after I can sort of like trace it back to, well, you know, of course, like I didn't feel safe in this circumstance. So when I find, you know, as a child, so now when I find myself in this circumstance as an adult, it's going to bring up, you know, it's going to, it's going to bring up those feelings. And then, you know, even though I have forgiveness for both my mother and my father, I I get that moment where I'm like, you know what? Fuck you. Like, fuck you for never letting me be a kid. Yeah. And fuck and fuck you to all of my my mother's siblings and everyone else who in subsequent years after my mother died said it's amazing that you're you know like we're so proud of you because I mean it was such a mess and it's so you know like you really transcended and like we didn't know how you were going to do it it's like really you didn't because you were a fucking grown up and I was 4 so why didn't you why didn't you step in right you know which unfortunately makes me that person in Walmart there's a kid getting yanked along by the arm or told to shut the fuck up I 100% like 100% of the time step in sometimes too. And I try to be, I try to be gracious about it. I try to be empathetic to the woman who's doing it or the man. But I mean, like I can't, I feel like if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the fucking problem. Right. Right. I like that. So, I, people need to take more action and, and, yeah. uh, and do something rather than just think about it. You know, I think that, uh, for whatever reason, it's hard though to get people to do it. It's like, there's something, I think about this with regard to social justice issues or poverty or whatever. It's like, and I think about it about myself. It's like, I could be doing more. Like yeah. I, I think about it a lot, but there's some, you know, it's hard to take action. And I think at the level of personal inconvenience, people tend to balk, you know, it's like, you got to be willing to make sacrifice. You got to be willing to experience discomfort, you know, whether it's like, because it's uncomfortable to go up to somebody in Walmart and be like, excuse me, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and to kind of insert yourself into that situation. But yeah, you know, I'm glad you do. I, when I do, I usually, I honestly, I usually go to the kid. Like I usually, I usually go to the kid and get down on the kid's level and go like, hi, sweetheart. And, and get ready, you know, like also with eyes in the back of my head that I'm potentially about to get hit, which right. by the way, no, which, which by the way, no one has ever done. I've had women tell me to fuck off and get the fuck away from their kid, you know, and then I've turned and said like, are you okay? Can I get you something? Like, I know this is like, this must be really hard, you know, and, and, but, in, but a few other times I've been like, you know what? Like you're scarring your fucking kid for life. Right. Just think about it. Yeah. You know? Um, so what happened with your mother? Like what happened to her once you left home? Um, well I left home, I left, well, I left home at a, at a, at a relatively early, okay. How much time do we have? Because, dude, like, I could do this all day long. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, we have some time. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. Um, when I was 13 and I was still attending the Brentwood School, it was that summer. It was that fateful summer between 9th and, and 10th grade. Um, I had a boyfriend and I got pregnant. And I had an abortion. And some at some point, somehow in there, my mother had lost a job and was losing her apartment. So she came to live with my boyfriend and me and I and wait where were you guys living also in Brentwood my my mother was living my mother was living in an apartment that she was managing in sort of Baja Westwood and uh my boyfriend whose name well I'm not even gonna say it but it was it, so it was such a great name not appropriate don't want to do that to him but um it was like it was like one of those names like oh they named you after a president like literally first last and you know first middle and last name so oh, wow. I, okay. yeah um, <laughs> Richard Richard Nixon 
Right. So my boyfriend, Richard Milhouse Nixon, um, uh, also lived with his older boss. They worked construction. And somehow my mother met that boss at a bar. And then, you know, I mean, this is is just one of those, like, you know, crazy stories of my life. I ended up moving in with us. And then I broke up with that boy. He moved back to Malibu, um, where his parents raised bees. Um, And... Uh, the other guy wanted wanted my mom out, and so we tracked down my father, who I had not seen in years. And my father was living with the woman who he spent virtually the rest of his life with, and one of her sons, and having like a whole you know life. He was working as an editor. My father, which we never we never, and so I never finished with that. But my father was sort of a failed everything. Like he you know he, he had directed one movie. He wrote a bunch of screenplays that didn't sell. He had moderate, like he was able to make a living as a, as a film editor. Um, but nothing, you know, like nothing transcendent. Like he wasn't like Woody Allen's right hand guy or anything, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, so my mother, we tracked my father down and, and she was like, you've got to take her, you know, she's, she's running amok. And, and so I moved in with my father for about a year and my timeline's a little iffy. Like it, it was, it was up to the point so I must have been 15, and then I got a, you know, because I was able to get a car, and then I moved out on my own. And my mother just sort of scattered to the winds at that point. And later, she moved to Las Vegas with her older brother, who had been a very successful prop master in the business in Los Angeles, but also an inveterate gambler and kind of bookie. And again, he's dead, so I guess I'm allowed to say that. So he moved to Vegas to actually be a bona fide bookie or perhaps an, I don't know, whatever. And she followed him there and she lived with him for quite a while. He was the only one who could sort of talk her down, like, you know, be like, Beverly, just like, stop it. You know, he, he was really sort of good at, at managing her. Um, and then he died and she moved into her van and she lived the rest of her life in her van. You know, she was a, she was a security guard at the best Western Mardi Gras hotel in Vegas for a little while, which is really scary when you think about her, you know, schizophrenic proclivities. <laughs> this is the one we want um, holding. This is the one we want holding the line at the casino. Yeah. yeah. You know, I see you alien creature down there, you know. I mean, like it's kind of funny when it's Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, but like when it's my mom, I don't know. Like it doesn't it's it's not exactly a men in black moment. Um and I, I would speak to her occasionally, but she was just so like she, she had deteriorated to a point that she barely made sense. You know, I mean, everything was, was conspiratorial and, and, um, and I tried, I mean, I, you know, I, I tried to get her help. I tried to, I mean, I, I did, I tried to, I tried a few different things. She didn't, she didn't want it. Um, and anyway, so we, we didn't speak for ever. And, um, until I got the call that she had, that she had run her van that she was living in, into the side of a, into the side of a building and, you know, one of those shitty, like, bars that doesn't have any windows, like, off the strip in Vegas. Um, That's what she did. Uh, yeah. Just yeah. no, no seatbelt, just drove at a high speed? Yeah, up. just drove it. Yeah, drove it straight in. Good God. Yeah. Okay. Which it's... was what she, she, she'd always threatened to do to both of us. You know, she'd always said, like, well, you know, we can... She, she, she has a few, like, grandiose statements, and occasionally I find myself making them or... And also mispronunciations. Like she called she called espresso demitasse, but she pronounced it demitasse, which I carried with me for like a super long time. 
And until someone had, you know, someone, Demi Tasse, like, what the fuck is that? Or she would also say, um, it, we're, you know, it's time for us to shuffle off this mortal coil. Also, she used to say, when I was a little, little kid, it's a great day for the banana fish. And it wasn't until I read J.D. Salinger. I mean, the first time I, the first time I read that book, are you fucking kidding me? You know? I know. Oh, my God. Wow, that is, that is uh, terrible. How troubled. My favorite part, though, is that that you have like laughter in your voice because it's you know I mean, it, dude, it's all it's terrible, but it's also fucking funny. Yeah, I mean, it's, just, it's like and, beyond and, belief, you know, and it's yeah. also, it's like for some a kid that age to be saying that to a kid that age is just twisted. Yeah. Um, it's it's one of the reasons that I'm such a huge fan of Carrie Fisher's, like who, both both her you know like her one woman show and the writing that she does, where she sort of says you know like if it wasn't. If it wasn't funny, it would just be true, and that is unacceptable. Yeah, and I think that I think that all of my work has that, and I, ha- I have to fight against against you know armoring with it. But but the truth is, like shit, like that's funny. I mean, it's dark and awful, but it's also it's also really kind of funny. Did you say sometimes? Are you talking about Carrie Fisher's one woman show where she's like barefoot and just like talking on stage? Yes, that, yes, that was hilarious. I, so uh, good, right? Yeah, she's uh, she's a character. Yeah. Um, and I love the part, like I didn't realize, like one of the parts of it that made me laugh so hard was when she was talking about why Princess Leia has that British accent. Um, and I didn't realize, like she had just been like in acting school in London and was, she was like 20 years old. Right. And, and it was, she was like all affected and thought it was cool and like thought, like she thought she was British. <laughs> yeah. You know, but like, and that's like, why. Like, and, like Madonna. And yeah, exactly. Also. Exactly. And she's just, I mean, that was hysterical. So, um, so I'm, I'm reading on your uh, website that you, uh, have you know you say you've transcended a, a lifetime of shitty jobs i want to read uh just a you know i'm going to read the list of jobs that you've had and then we're going to try to discuss some of this okay. uh dog walker cook telemarketer celebrity personal assistant theme restaurant waitress and i think we've already discussed failed drug dealer yes uh so you also also magician's assistant of course, because I, I, somehow that fell off of that list, and I, I've got I've got to go back and put that back in there. Yeah, you can't forget magician's assistant. Is this it like the magic castle or something? Or not? I mean, really, more like bat mitzvahs and bar, you know, and children's birthday parties. <laughs> but he was a member of the magic castle, and we did we have done a couple. I did get to you know like load a couple of dove pans in the you know like in the small small room. Right, and that, that's and I'm actually being facetious because if you're you're not allowed to use those kind of tricks at the magicians at, at the Magic Castle, but yes, okay. no, it, you know, it, it wasn't like I wasn't working for David Copperfield. Let's put it that way. Okay, you weren't. Yeah, you weren't on the strip. <laughs> yeah, um, but celebrity personal assistant. Yes, well, that's I mean the, that's the sort of the the overarching theme of of my I mean well actually the over the overarching theme of my book is our cultural if I've done it right is our cultural obsession with celebrity I mean I think that you know I think that as a as certainly as a nation if not as a planet we are you know more obsessed with fame fame and famous people than we ever ever have been and I think part of that is the advent of, you know, the immediacy of social media and how everyone is paparazzi and how everyone is, you know, everyone is a reporter because you can just, you know, like pop up on your blog and be like, here's a picture that I just saw of, you know, so-and-so like taking a leak in the alley behind Dantana's, you know, uh, whereas 30 or 40 years ago, that stuff was much more controlled. Um, and again, fame being that family value that it was in my house, I gravitated toward, toward that 
insanity. And right. I was I, w- I was a personal assistant for a lot of years. Okay, that's not that's not that uh, like I find that's not that uncommon. Maybe I'm saying something really obvious, but I've noticed that like uh, like Los Angeles families where the parents are in entertainment, uh, there's just such a strong. Uh, like like you say, fame is a family value. Every kid in the family really wants to be famous, or it seems right. like you know, or a lot of them do, and uh, it's kind of expected. Like that's what you pursue. And I remember when I was teaching uh, at Santa Monica College, I would like take a poll. I would just be curious um, and like go off script and be like, "What do you guys want to do? You know, like what what is what do people think they want to do with their lives?" And like and like a, a solid majority wanted to be in film and television acting. But I, what I really want to do is direct. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, all, <laughs> like literally that's all they could think of. And I mean, those, you know, those are fun jobs, I guess. I mean, it's like, it's a lot of people wouldn't want them if they, you know, they have a high reward at least in terms of money. And, and, uh, you know, I guess they take a lot away from you too, but that doesn't get analyzed as much. And, um, I don't know. It just, it seems, seems sort of depressing to me. It, well, it's, it was never, I mean, when I so when I when I moved back from San Francisco after my first marriage crumbled, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, and um, I fell into being a personal assistant because I had a friend who. For whom? Had, um, and eh, here's the thing: the book, this book is fiction, and somewhere accidentally it was called a Ramona Clay, and I mean the book's fiction, and. It, I tend to not, I, I've never, I've never been, I've never been a person when people ask who I work for prior to my writing about it, I always said like, you want me to tell you who I worked for or you want me to tell you the funny, the fun and, you know, like scandalous stories. And people would always say like, oh, I want to hear the scandalous stories. And it's like, yeah, then I'm not going to tell you who I worked for because, you know, like those aren't really, aren't my stories to tell. And like, I, I mean, they are on the one hand, but adding that person isn't, isn't my, you know, like isn't my deal. Right. Um, then when I wrote this book, it's, it's such a comp. I mean, it's such a pastiche. Uh, all the characters are such are such composite characters of all of the people that I've worked for and been around and spent you know spent time in the room with. And so, if I name, if I tell you who I worked for, um, then inevitably, not you, but I mean, how I feel about this book is, if I say who I worked for, then you're going that person. You're going to you're going to assign that person to a, to a character in this book, and that's just not. That, that that does both that person a disservice because it's a it's not true, and b like it, 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 you're doing yourself a disservice because you should be you should be formulating your own you know like your your own idea of of who the, who that person is in your mind. I got you. So, but let's just just for the the sake of the podcast, like you have worked for uh, actors, directors. Uh, I've worked for ac- I've worked for actors, composers, a director. Uh, a couple of producers, mostly mostly actors, and you know, and I and when I say actors, I mean actors and actresses. Okay, but people, um, people that like that are very famous that the the average person would know. Yes. Okay. And and you saw and if you, and 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 if you if you were so inclined and you really wanted to dig deep, 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 deep with your Google finger, you could you could figure you could figure a few things out. Okay, so. Uh... <laughs> give me a story. What's like some, I mean, what did you see? And then, well, first of all, give me just a couple of anecdotes of, of uh, the absurdities that you might have to uh, confront when you're in that world and working in that role. Um, one of the, okay. One of the worst things that I've ever, that I personally have ever had to do is, is 
collect a stool sample, by which I mean stand outside a bathroom door and have a bag of human shit handed to me, but then <laughs> take it and put it into, you know, like it was, a, it was a parasite test. So there are like five little tiny vials that come with like little tiny, like almost like cocaine scoops from the 70s, you know, in, that are in the lid of each one. And so you, you sort of have to dig in and there's fluid in each of those five vials and you have to, you have to, you know, like scoop the poop into the little vial and then shake it, agitate it for 90 seconds and, you know, and then put it in its own little case. And then, and then of course it has to go like directly to the lab. So like I've been that person, which was, you know, I mean, that's, 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 about, a, as, that's about as low that, as it gets. <laughs> yeah. I've, you know, I've, I've, cleaned up, you know, I mean, I've cleaned up more dog shit than anyone ever, you know, any, and I'm a dog person, but, you know, like actors for whatever reason, at least many of the actors that I've worked for, um, just take a certain pride in their dog being untrained. And it's, it's like, really, you know, I mean, like, like, so, so there's just dog shit all over your floor all the time. I mean, unless, I mean, there's usually a few people working in the house, but it's like, oh, you know, like, Princess, princess shit on the, you know, Obison rug again. It's like, really? Because every time I have to have that fucking thing cleaned, it's $1,000. And then it's like, why are, why are my household bills so high? Dude, because your dog's untrained and you let him shit on the rug every five. Oh. You know, and, and also stop feeding him people food. Right. <laughs> yeah, people who don't, people who don't uh, train their dogs properly. Like you talked about yeah. uh, interrupting people uh, in Walmart who are mistreating their children or whatever. If I see somebody yeah. like one of the things, it's a weird pet peeve, but somebody who repeats a command to a dog who's like, sit, sit, sit. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, no, like I have to stop. And you, you know, you're basically training the dog to not respond to you. Yeah. On the first you're, command. You're, you're, you're training the dog that he does not have to pay attention to you. Yes, exactly. For at least the first, at least the first four or five. Yeah. It drives me yeah. crazy. It drives me yeah. crazy. I, I don't understand why people even have pets if they're not going to take the time to like properly, you know, because here's the thing, just to get on my soapbox, if you don't take the time to properly train your dog, you're making the dog's life worse. Yeah. Because no yeah. one's, no one's going to want to be around it. They're going to think it's annoying. Well, and I mean, I think the same could be said for children, although yeah. I, do not, I do not have any. But, you know, you see, that, you see that behavior. You see people where, you know, it's like, Mommy, can I have this? Mommy, can I have this? Mommy, can I have this? No, 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 no. Well, okay. It's like, yep, you just pretty much taught your kid that if they just push it, they're going to get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you got to draw the line. You got to draw the line. So, uh, you know, like for I wanted to hear like an anecdote, and then the other thing, the other part of that question is like having gone through uh, these years working as a personal assistant and seeing, um, you know, celebrity and privilege uh, in close proximity, like hyper celebrity, hyper privilege, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, is there something you learned like about these kinds of people? Are there like general takeaways? about like who who they tend to be personality wise or what the life does to them or do you know what i'm saying like did you what did you learn one of the things one of the things that I, that i learned that was that was relatively uh, relatively surprising to me is and, and again this is this is empirical evidence but it's anecdotal it's no data here just anecdotal but i find that the cooler the person appears on the outside like the more of the people they appear to be on the outside, the more neurotic they are, for sure. Like, the girl who comes in and goes like, oh, you know, like, can I just, can I get a big giant piece of that pizza? And then, like, you know, it's like, oh, no, I don't need a chair. I'll just sit on the floor and, you know, whatever. Like, that that inevitably, behind the gates of her home, is the biggest fucking diva ever. <laughs> ever. Well, that's weird. I guess it's like a compensatory, it's like a... Yeah, it's, it's a, a, 
and I mean, virtually every actress, I've not, not only every actress I've ever worked for, but it's kind of endemic. I mean, you know, like you read it everywhere. It's like, oh, I'm such a nerd. Yeah, that, uh, that's that's one of my you, dude. You you're you're not right. <laughs> you're yes. not, and you never have been, and you don't you don't you don't you don't you 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 can't lay claim to that. Right. I I reject you. I reject your I reject your nerd claim. Well, right. I mean, I, th- I feel like I hear this from models all the time. Like, oh, yeah, I, I of didn't, course. I had no boyfriends in high school. Uh-huh. He, it's like shut you know shut it please. Yeah, exactly. you, you were like a five you know just gorgeous like uh, genetically perfect specimen. Like, there's no way yeah. that you were a complete outcast. Um, so, you, you know, at some point you say goodbye to all that and you get into writing. Um, I'm curious, like, was this something that you always had in the back of your mind that you wanted to do and it just took you a while to get to it? Or was it something that kind of dawned on you later in life and, uh, you picked it up and realized you had an affinity for it and it was something you enjoyed? This is our Barbara Walters moment because I rarely am able to say this in any incarnation without somehow getting teary about it. But eh, here it comes. I didn't. I didn't think that girls like me got to do things like that. You know. I mean, I was an avid reader from the time that I was. My mother taught me how to read. You know, my mother started teaching me how to read when I was two. When I hit kindergarten, I was reading fluently. Like she was like, "Okay, bedtime stories are over for you. You got this. Like I'll be in the. I'll be in the. I'll be on the sofa bed with the Chablis. Here are the books. Like <laughs> knock yourself out. Which I mean, to some degree, was a gift. Right. I mean, it, you know, and and. Uh, well, while books were an absolutely integral part of, and I didn't have, I mean, we didn't have the money. I didn't have a babysitter. I mean, from the time that I was going to Carl Thorpe, like I would walk, you know, the 12 blocks at six down to the, to the Santa Monica public library and wait there until, you know, until she picked me up from, until she got off her job at five thirty and picked me up at six o'clock. So, I mean, books were everything to me, but and like total lump in my throat when I say it. Like I didn't, I didn't think that I got to, you know, I, dude, I was a high school dropout who like dealt drugs and like fucked a lot of random boys for a long time. You know, like I got this, are you in? I'm gesturing to myself right now. I'm probably hitting the mic, but you know, like I didn't, my self-worth was so infinitesimally low or infinitesimal that it just, it never occurred to me that, that anything that I actually had to say would that I that I would be able to, to to put that together in any sort of comprehensive manner and and tell a story worth telling. Plus, you know, blah blah. There's there a lot of shame in my you know in my. I that was all a secret for me for a long time. I'm one one of the reasons that I'm uber forthcoming about you know all of that. Like it was, it was so it's, it's so easy for me to talk to you as I just did in this in this podcast. Is I I had to like completely let go of the idea that all of that was shameful to me in some way. But I carried that until into into my thirties, into my mid thirties, where you know, like, what am I going to write about? And I tried, you know, like, I don't know, maybe in my late twenties, I sort of tried to write like a few short stories. But I was, I wasn't, a, I wasn't willing to consciously or subconsciously, I wasn't willing to allow any, like, any of my actual truth into it because that was just too too shameful and and you know and and ugly and and who would want to see that? So somewhere along the line, say maybe, I don't know, four or five years into active therapy, it was, I, I sort of had the, you know, the tiny little glimmer that maybe, that maybe I wanted to, you know, that I, that I wanted to write. And in the meantime, I mean, earlier, I'd always been sort of high functioning in my jobs. And I, you know, like I have that list of jobs, which are all true, 
of, you know, like all the shitty jobs that I had. But I also had, you know, like I also had a few sort of great jobs where like I worked for the sketchers in their design department and basically did like, you know, like I wrote all of the PR stuff for, uh, for, uh, the senior vice president of design, like all the things that she was supposed to write, you know, like all, I did all her interviews and, and that kind of stuff. And people would always say like, Oh my God, you're so, you know, like you're so funny. You're so, you're so incisive. You're so great. But it was just, it all just sort of went like, yeah, yeah. Over the top of my head until I had enough therapy under my belt that I could say that, that, that it just, that it just seemed like maybe that terrifying thing of putting myself out there wasn't, wasn't like, maybe I could actually do it. And look at you now. And look, <laughs> living the dream. <laughs> hey, reviewed in the New York Times. I mean, come on. You're doing it. Yeah. Well, no, it was, I mean, I, I have to, and I, I, I as long as I, I always do, I have to give a huge, you know, shout out to my first mentor, Samantha Dunn, who, you know, I took a class at UCLA and I didn't have the prerequisites for it. Like I, I heard her speak at an, at an open house there. And I thought whatever she's teaching, I'm going to take it mostly because I just want to see if I can get her to be my friend because she was so funny and so accessible. And she talked about growing up in a trailer park in, in New Mexico and, and, you know, with a, with a very complicated mother. And I just, I just was very drawn to her. And I ended up in that class with 30 pages of my journal that I had spent, you know, like two weeks taking out all the, most of the dudes and the swearing and the, because let's face it, I talk like a 14 year old Valley girl. And I, I just, I mean, I think, and I'm at 51, I've just sort of resigned myself to that. Um, <clears throat> it's an, and it's a defense mechanism for sure. But wait, what, uh, what is, I don't think you talk too much like a Valley girl. You don't. No. You're the first, really? I mean, well, there, I mean, uh, yeah. don't make me, don't make me have a crush on you, Brad Listy. <laughs> <laughs> but what's a defense mechanism about it? Just, you know, that, that, go ahead and judge me on, on my, you know, on the way that, on the way that I present myself so that, so that if you, if you're actually going to judge me on something that matters to me, I can push you away and go like, Oh, well, of course, because I talk like a Valley girl. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Um, you know, still, still dealing with shame. It's, it's, it's so much less than it was, but still dealing with shame of my lack of education and, you know, and and moving through the literary community, moving through the literary world as I did over the past ten years, which you know this book that's that's out right now is is relatively commercial, and I'm proud of it. I mean, and I wrote it that way. I mean, I wrote that book to sell, but the memoir that I worked on for a long time, I did not. I mean, the memoir that I worked on for a long time was completely from the heart, and it was also it was also an education. I mean, I basically got an MFA while I was trying to write that book because, you know, so I took that first class at UCLA in 2006 and, and Sam, I gave her my, these 30 pages from my journal. And when she handed it back to me, instead of it being, you know, sort of all marked up and, and full of notes and whatever, it just said, call me. And it had her phone number on the back. And so I did. And she said, so you're already functioning as a writer. Like, what's your deal? And of course I cried. I'm a crier. You know, it's amazing that I've not cried in this, in, in this, in the hour that we've spent together so far. There's still time. Um, yeah, there is. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't take much for you to get it out of me. Um, I don't know if that's a goal of yours. I, I've, like I said, I've listened to some of your podcasts. It doesn't seem to be, but maybe no, you can start a new trend. I don't think I've ever had, I mean, I might've had a couple of lumps in the throat, but I don't think I've yeah. ever had anybody full. I mean, I, not that I recall. I'm not a whaler. I mean, I just, I, I'm, but I, but I cry a lot. 
And I think, I mean, I, I'm one of the, I'm like a little kid in that way. Like I sort of, I have a feeling I cry and then I'm like, okay, you want to go get ice cream? You know, I mean, it's not, it's not like it's something that throws me into like this, this, you know, existential angst or depression or anything. It's like, you have a, I have a feeling I deal with it and then I move on. Right. But anyway, so Sam, uh, 30 pages, call me, you know, I tormented her into teaching a private workshop basically by bribing her and saying that I would be, you know, her assistant to coordinate it because she was like, I'm busy. I don't want to, I can't. And she did. So I worked in, in a, in a workshop with Sam for about eight or nine months. And she was like, look, you're, you're writing a memoir, honey, whether you know it or not, you are, you're putting all the little pearls like into your little, you know, into your little basket and the, the string will appear. Just trust yourself and you should start applying for shit. So I did. I mean, you know, I applied to McDowell and I applied to Yotto and the, Prague summer program and Norma Mailer, like this whole host of things. And I started, and I started getting them, you know, which was not Yato fuckers, but, um, which was kind of amazing. And, you know, so I would go off to these places and, and some of them were, some of them were, were, uh, fellowships and, and some of them were residencies and some of them were, you know, more generative. Like I went to, I went to the Atlantic center and worked with honor Moore for a month and, went to the New York summer writers Institute and worked with Marilyn Robinson. And I mean that, I mean, that's how, that's how I sort of cut my teeth, you know, just, just going, you know, just sort of bouncing around to all of these places that would have me um, and, and immersing myself in the, in the writing community. But, Oh, I know where I was going. People, you know, so first trip to McDowell or, and only at this point, um, 2007, I've got, you know, I've got 50 pages under my belt and I roll up and I'm there with, I'm there with Andrew Solomon and I'm there with Nam Lee and, and Bill Finnegan and, you know, and a bunch of other people who, by the way, all of those, all three of those men, amazing. I mean, I thank them in my acknowledgments because they were so, so very kind to me. But then there's also the people who I will not name who are like, oh, you dropped out of high school in the 10th grade. That's interesting. So how did you get here, you know, over dinner or Oh, you're writing a memoir. Well, you must have had a very interesting life, you know, and just like there's that there's there's literary citizenship that 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 can help you grow. And there's there's lack of literary citizenship that can be very stunting. And I just feel very fortunate that that I've had I've had some exemplary literary citizens along the way who have been willing to just sort of hold their hand out. And, you know, like one of my benchmarks for for you know, I, like after five minutes of conversation with you in a room, whether it's at AWP or, you know, like whatever party we're at and someone says like, have you read whatever? And if the answer is no, and it's something that they're, you know, it's, it's something from the Pantheon and they're a fan of it, they'll light up and go like, oh my God, I'm so excited because it's this, this, and this. Whereas if it's a person who goes like, oh, you haven't, right. it's like, yeah, you're crossed off my list, dude. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> see yeah, yeah. ya. Snob. Yeah, we, Snob. <laughs> yeah. Fuck off. Like, right. Well, but I mean, you know, you forged your own way. And I, to be honest with you, I, th- I feel like when it comes to doing this stuff, uh, it's about reading and writing. It's about doing the work. Yeah. And, you, you know, whether you do that in the context of, um, you know, institutional learning where it can be, you know, that can work. Plenty of great writers have gotten their MFAs or you do it on your own and you're self-taught and you find your own mentors and you, uh, you know, do the work independent of an institution either way works. That's sort of the, you know, that's yeah. kind of the beauty of it. it. It's, it's rare. Some, you know, it's a rare profession that can say that. So, uh, I applaud you for, you know, Aww. for persevering because you were dealt a, a much tougher hand than most of us. And, uh, 
you know, it's a great story, and I'm I'm going to be looking forward to that memoir. I mean, I, I got to believe that memoir is coming. Well, it's you know, it exists in pieces. It's in tatters under my bed, and now the question is, of course, do I do I move to that, or which is which is the love you know is my love is a love of mine for sure, or do I continue in the vein of this heartful, I hope, but but breezy commercial work that you know i'm not gonna lie has been very lucrative for me right well the intersection of art and commerce my friend so what you got was there a bidding war over it uh there was not a bidding war there was a preempt okay um i i was in the the first person who read it was denise roy at dutton and she actually had she, she said she wanted to acquire it but had some suggestions about like some plot stuff that that she wanted me to address, which was sort of, you know, like, wait, you want me to address them before you buy it? You know, I was, I was wary about that. And there were a couple of other people in the mix, but I did go ahead and do that. And then, and then she came back and I, my, my agent sort of left me out of, of the, like, I didn't, I didn't want to be involved in the moment by moment of that because I'm so neurotic about that stuff. And I try to drive the bus. Um, but she ended up coming back and saying, you know, like, here's this big fat preempt from Dutton. And, um, you know, and I was and I was super happy to take it sure. after. All right. And what about and, uh, you, do you have another novel going at all or is it uh, all upstairs? I, it's, it's pretty much all upstairs at this point. I have two that I have two. It, it could go one of two ways. And then, you know, and then the memoirs kind of calling me. So I don't know. We'll see. All right. Well, I uh, I wish you well with it, and I thank mm-hmm. you, thank you for taking the time to talk. It's been real fun, uh, you know, hearing your story as as difficult as it was at points. And it's uh, like I said, hats off to you for you know uh, doing what you're doing and for having uh, such a good sense of humor. And uh, thanks, I, Brad. I wish you well. And I and I you. I can't wait to. Uh, I can't, hopefully, our paths will cross again. We've met once actually, but hopefully, our paths will cross again in in the real world and soon. Mm-hmm.